This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Pavalli, and I'm coming at you, as almost always, with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, unparalleled, intelligible co-host, Andy D. Bailey. We are... Going to talk a lot about the playoffs because we're doing a postseason mailbag now, so we're going to be all over the place. We'll get to some news items as well since there's a couple of things to tackle since we last recorded. Before we start, as always, I want to remind people, implore people, beg people to please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can even subscribe to us on Stitcher, basically wherever else you get your podcasts. We really do need to get on uh, putting us on Google Play, we kind of stalled on that. And if you listen to your podcast on another medium, feel free to tag Andy or I on Twitter at Andrew D Bailey or at Dan Favale, Favale, uh, where you'd like to see us up. We are on a few different mediums, but we are open to putting our. I'll look into getting us on more if people listen to their podcasts in different formats. But right now, the best way you can help us is to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, It's super humbling when we see the ratings go up. It's incredibly humbling when someone shouts us out on Twitter to say they left a review or tell us we're doing good work, or even to shit on us, but they also let us know that they are, in fact, listening. It is all appreciated. (laughs) You can still get 15% off at the NBAMath.com shop as well, NBAMath.com slash shop, and the promo code is Benno, B-E-N-O. You should be able to remember that because he gets a shout-out at the end of every podcast and he participates in, so about 105% of them. Uh, And then finally, before we jump into everything we need to talk about, we have to ask the question that everyone is dying to know. Andy, how are you doing now that the Jazz are about to complete the gentleman sweep of the Oklahoma City Thunder? Oh, man. I was like bordering on giddy as the lead ballooned in the second half last night and it was uh <laughs> it was interesting to see OKC just melting down as that game went on and it's I will we'll talk about this more later but that team is just almost completely devoid of composure after Steven Adams there's like there's nobody who can keep it together it seems like there's even even with Steven Adams a couple of times I'm just like he I mean, the Jazz are doing a good job putting bodies on him um, on the glass, but they should I, the Jazz should not be grabbing as many offensive rebounds as they are. And they yeah. the Jazz like they're when they run their pick and rolls, it it seems because the Thunder all over place that it's reached like Warriors running it with Draymond Green and Stephen Curry levels of unguardable because the way you see them collapse on Rudy Gobert, Rudy, wow, Rudy Gobert when he's rolling toward the rim. 
and they leave these shooters wide open in the corners, and even when it's Joe Ingles, and Gobert's getting better at looking to see if people are in the corners, but even at the initial point, uh, if they go after the, the the ball handler, like they're leaving these guys who are above the break wide open. I just don't understand. It seems like they're overreacting to everything that the Jazz do, and I didn't get to watch that game game four in real time. I hit a wall on Monday night. I just I fell asleep early, and I watched it this morning. It was just... As you said, they just the Thunder seemed to lack like any sort of composure whatsoever, and just all those scuffles um, toward the end of the game. Joe Ingles is clearly inside everybody's head. Uh, yeah, it's just it, it's incredible. They did really. Uh, your description of the pick and rolls is accurate. They just look frantic, and I think they made it even worse by like telling themselves that oh we're gonna we're gonna shut these guys down next game and and Westbrook specifically said that about Rubio obviously and I think it I think Anthony Irwin who hosts Locked On Lakers had a pretty good tweet he said did Russell Westbrook just invent how to play defense selfishly and (laughs) (laughs) it was something like that and it I mean it's a perfect description and and really you could say that his defense has been like that for a couple of years but it was so bad last night we actually have I mean, a piece at NBA Math going up by Nate Wolf, one of our contributors, to, uh, I guess we'll call it Wednesday, about Russell Westbrook's defense and how it's killed Oklahoma City this series. That'll be good. Um, I'll, I'm looking forward to checking that one out for sure. And it should, it really should also be noted that uh, I, I felt like, I know Rubio had a bad shooting night. I think he was 4 of 12, and he missed, he was like 1 of 6 from 3, I think, and he, I still can't, I'm not used to Ricky Rubio pull-up threes, and when they happen in transition, <laughs> I just, I can't get used to them, but I mean, he had 8 assists, he rebounded the ball okay, he, and, had, a, he had a bunch of turnovers, but he's just like, he's pesky on D still, so it's just, I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, if you, I just, it was just, it was a, a ter- like you said, I don't understand why Westbrook would put himself in that situation, it also makes him look bad, because it's like, all right, if you can say that this is going to happen in game four, where the hell were you like the first three games? If you could just lock Ricky Rubio down whenever you wanted. Yeah, very good point. Um, But we're going to talk more about that series, or at least the Thunder's complete and utter implosion, it seems, later on in the podcast. Before we jump to the questions, there were uh, a couple news items that I did want to get to. Uh, I'd like to start with a low piece. Uh, Zach Lowe over at ESPN.com talked about whether or not the Pelicans are going to re-sign to Marcus Cousins this summer. And this situation has been fascinating uh, because it went from the Pelicans have to impress Cousins enough to have him stay to do they even need him now. And he the Achilles injury is part of it, but the Thunder have also been really good without him. That Miritich-Davis front court just makes so much sense, as does just Anthony Davis at the five in general. But you look at it, uh, Davis and Cousins outscored opponents by 4.2 points per 100 possessions in close to 1,100 minutes of action during the regular season. The Pelicans were plus 10.7 when it was Miritich and Davis during the regular season, 576 minutes. Then through the playoffs thus far, only four games, 119 minutes. That's a net rating of uh, 19.4 they've had together. So those are some real questions they have to ask. Lowe said within his piece that the Pelicans have broached the idea of offering Cousins a two- or three-year deal worth less than the max. And I he, he talks about – everyone should read the piece. Again, it's up. You can go to his Twitter feed or go to ESPN.com and find it. It tackles basically every imaginable, imaginable approach to Cousins' as the next contract. But a lot of it depends on 
what his market's going to be, because it was probably going to be kind of skimpy to begin with since there are so many big men in the league. More than two-thirds of the NBA isn't going to have cap space this year. Now you bake in the Achilles injury, and his market's going to be deflated even more. The Pelicans might be able to get away with signing him to a shorter-term contract. Uh, does there have to be a, Can there be a team option on that third year? That would be ideal for them, in my opinion, if they're going the short-term route, just because then him and Davis basically hit the open market at the same point. But maybe it's cheap enough to where they don't care about giving him three guaranteed years or a player option at, at those three years. I'm just curious to see where you sort of fall on this topic. Yeah, I don't know if I would – if I'm New Orleans, I don't know if I want to be on the hook for that next contract, especially if it's a max. So it makes sense to me that they're – There's no way he gets At least max, considering so, – right? I don't. I, like, that's a good team, question. I, who else would offer it to him? I mean, I talked to, uh, and now he actually has a question in the mailbag, so we'll bring him up later. Um, but Isaac Harris, who writes for Mavs. dot com, was was talking to me the other day about the possibility of of Dallas signing Cousins, and we've actually discussed that possibility too here on the pod. Um, I I can't I can't think of many other teams that would throw a ton of money at him. Will Dallas even have cap space? Yeah, they can, they have like a clear path to more than the max. Yeah, than $20 million in room, and they can get um, even more than that because they have a bunch of rest, uh, restricted free agents on their books, and they have a couple non-guaranteed deals as well. That's the only team that I can think of. And um, before he got hurt, LeBron and, and – or yeah, before Cousins got hurt, LeBron and Boogie made a lot of sense to me on the Lakers for those two caps – max slot that they opened up he doesn't make any sense on the 76ers no uh, and i think i think those are like your main cap even if you opened up sign and trade team. possibilities it's tough to find a team that would um be willing to pay him even i can't to even come close to the max though you know well, and i also don't even i don't even they they play better without him <laughs> and i think that's a huge part of this obviously they play so much more like gentry's um Suns teams did that he took to, to pretty deep in the playoffs after McDin Tony left Phoenix. Just because you can run more, you can move more uh, when you have Davis at the five, like you said, and that that combo with him and Miritich is just dynamite right now. I don't. <laughs> it seems crazy to say because obviously Demarcus Cousins is a better player than Nikola Miritich. But fit and chemistry and what you're able to do stylistically, you know, depending on who you have on the floor, is a huge part of basketball. So, to me, I would, I would be tempted if I was New Orleans to just continue to roll with the front court that they have right now. I I get that sentiment too, and I tend to agree with you. And it's not so. I don't think it's an indictment of Cousins' ability. It's just that Anthony Davis at center has always just made too much sense. Yeah, it makes so much more sense. The the only thing I will say there though is if I wonder if they could, and I wouldn't be opposed to them doing this. Can you get him to sign a two year max? Like just give him that money because then it's a short term risk. He's going to get more than sixty million dollars. Dollars and guaranteed money can revisit free agency when he's still on the right side of thirty. Just because they're not going to have cap space, if they, not a lot of it, if they get rid of him, they'll have they'll have an easier time of accessing the full non-taxpayer mid-level exception. But unless they're going to be one of the scenarios I, I lined up lined out or threw out in an article is if they get rid of Cousins, they're not really going to get appreciable room unless they 
let's say, stretch uh, Alexis Aginza and then find a taker to unload the final two years and $26.1 million on Solomon Hill's deal. If you can sweeten that pot enough and then you just say, hey, we're done with the Ligons and Emeka Okafor experiments, you can have more than $16 million in room, which is stuff you could do something with that. At the same time, though, that's still a lot of hoops to jump through. It'll be very hard to get rid of Solomon Hill's deal in this cap climate, and the Pelicans have traded away enough picks to do that. And when you're going to do something like that without sort of keeping like you know you're losing Demarcus Cousins then you still have to grease the wheels of other trades it just doesn't sound too appetizing and it, essentially it seems like to me they're in a position thanks to the Miritich trade and thanks to their success where they don't have to be desperate in Cousins negotiations but I don't think you can just look at this as hey we should let him walk because we're better without him just because you don't have the flexibility or the ready-made flexibility to go out and and do other things. Maybe you can get a really good player with the Fulman level exception. I actually, without a doubt, you could probably get a really good player, but cousins is still a star and to let him walk for nothing and then not have access to a bunch of cap space kind of sucks. Last thing I'll say, what if, uh, what if your full mid level exception is used on Derek favors and then your three man rotation is Miritich and, and Davis starting with favors coming off the bench. I don't know what favors would do that, but I don't know why they – if they're going to get rid of DeMarcus Cousins, I wouldn't get another big. I'd want to go after a wing. Maybe like – So you would just like hope that Czech Diallo can fill those, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes? Yeah. Um, you yeah, can even – there fair. are even times in that – I mean, granted, this was the Blazers, but you can run Miritich at center if you really want to or have him defend yeah. centers. Um, you also have Emeka Okafor really cheap. And there are going to be other bigs that could just end up being super cheap on the market. I'd rather see them go after – I'm actually, I guess I'm accidentally, these are all the wings that everyone's going to mention, but Will Barton, that's who Lowe mentioned, that he'd be a good fit for that team. Danny Green would be a fantastic fit for that team. What is Kentavious Caldwell-Pope's market going to be? You know, he got that one-year huge deal in Los Angeles, but is he going to have access to a bunch more money? Would a full mid-level deal entice him? He probably seems like a little bit of a reach. You should probably steer clear of Tyreek Evans after the experience you had with him there, but I would go after a wing if they're if they're going to do that. And the one team yeah, that, makes sense. that Lowe mentioned that I could see maybe doing something in a sign-and-trade would be the Wizards, but they're so close. Uh, they're going to be in the luxury tax if they don't do some maneuvering anyway, and I can't imagine them, even if Cousins is semi-affordable, yes, you can use Gortat as filler, but now you're paying Cousins and Mahimi because there's no—I'd be shocked if the Pelicans are taking back Mahimi in that deal, and then you're going to have to give up at least one of Kelly Oubre Jr. and Otto Porter in that trade, and I'm not sure I want to do that in exchange for Cousins. Yeah, I don't think I would. Um, the One of the other things was, this is from John Krasinski of The Athletic. He On Monday, before the Wolves lost to the Rockets, he or he relayed this bit of a radio interview from Glenn, Wolves owner Glenn Taylor saying that Minnesota will lean heavily on Jimmy Butler this summer to help recruit free agents to try to convince them to play for less dollars to join a winner. I found that hysterical. And and John K adds, and it will be up to to the Wolves to be able to convince said free agents that playing time will be available to them. I don't... Yeah. I know the Timberwolves are on pace to flirt with 50 victories and, until Jimmy Butler's meniscus injury. I don't see them being in a position to recruit free agents at discounts. It's... Just look at no. the sales pitches. Hey, come play for Tibbs where he'll ruin your knees or not play you at all. Um, Especially if you're a veteran, that's like just begging to have your career ended. Right. And then, but even aside from that, Jimmy Butler's going to be a free agent in 2019. He has that player option 
unless he's going to say to free agents, I want to be here long term, I don't want to take Minnesota's long term money if I'm not already thinking about them. And the other thing for Minnesota is I, they can they, they can do some things where maybe they'll be able to they'll probably if they really try they can access their non taxpayer mid level exception they'll have the full use of that eight plus million dollars that can land a good player. Do you want to spend it all on one player because you do have a lot of needs and it's certainly your biggest need needs to happen on the wing. And from there, though, even if they have that money, yes, it could get a good player, but you still have to kind of outpitch other teams because there will be other suitors that have the full mid-level exception that, to me, will look more enticing. I know Carl Anthony Towns is fantastic, but the Andrew Wiggins deal doesn't look so hot right now. The Timberwolves don't have a ton of cap flexibility moving forward, especially if uh, they're going to keep Butler. And then also Carl Anthony Towns is extension eligible this summer, so he'll, he'll have a new salary by... Um, his fifth season as well. It's just, I don't know that they're an enticing FA destination. And to ask Jimmy Butler to recruit, to like be the selling point for free agents when he's going to hit the open market himself is just, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I echo everything you said. I It's a very, very strange, <laughs> I, I don't know what else the owner is supposed to say. I mean, that's that's probably their best shot at a free agency pitch, but I don't think it'll be terribly effective. No, I, I'm just to, to come play for a winner. I get it. You made the playoffs at the eighth seed <laughs> despite injuries, but like, let's, you know, let's chill. Yeah. The last bit of news that will coalesce into the mailbag, though, uh, Russell Westbrook. The NBA is reviewing whether he needs to be suspended for Game Five of the Thunder Jazz series because when Gobert and Felton were going at it. Westbrook was ready to check in at the time, and he walked onto the court and had this little, you know, like, I don't know, like a little sparring with Rudy Gobert, whatever you want to call it, a little dust-up, kerfuffle, whatever you want to say it was. And I guess the NBA has to review whether he was, from what I've read, just by letter of the rule, if they're going to be that stringent, if the ref waved him in, then he could, then it's not really a big deal. But if he wasn't technically waved into the game that he should be suspended for game five. Yeah. I honestly didn't even, I mean, I, I knew that he got involved in the, I don't know what, maybe we can call it a scrum. Um, but I didn't even think about it in real time that he wasn't in the game. Cause I, at one point Westbrook and Felton played together in that game. I'm pretty sure. So in my mind, maybe I was just thinking it was another one of those stints. But when somebody brought it up to me after the game, I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. I don't think <laughs> – my first reaction to the person who brought it up to me last night was I just I just can't see the league. Um, I just don't think I, – I don't see him doing anything about it is what I'm trying to get out of my mouth right now. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing to me is <laughs> – and maybe, like you said, this will kind of dovetail into the questions – he he was just so unglued the whole night. I don't even understand what he was doing in that moment. It was like they were just going out of their way to to, to try to start fights every couple of minutes. It was uh, especially toward the Felton end. Felton fouled. Yeah, it got out of control. Felton fouled Gobert, and he goes down holding himself like he's hurt. And he didn't even really get in Felton's face or anything. And all of a sudden, Westbrook is just right in the middle of nothing. I don't, I don't really understand what, what his purpose was at that point. It was, it was a very bizarre sort of tailspin for the Thunder last night. 
it, it doesn't help that Westbrook is playing extremely poorly. He's yeah. I mean, you can't have the guy who's leading your team in shot attempts per game, just barely. Paul George and him are kind of neck and neck there, but he's shooting under 37% from the floor, uh, under 22% from three. He's not really taking as many 3.5 attempts from three per game. I just, and obviously, Carmelo Anthony's struggles don't help. He's been bad too, shooting under 24% from three on 6.5 attempts per game. I don't. It's funny. It's we talked, and isn't this the question? Do you want to read the question that someone gave us? Yeah, Michael Randall at Mick Randall HS. Would the Thunder benefit from a Westbrook suspension in Game Five? And I, I kind of laughed when I read it, but then I looked up the numbers, and OKC's minus thirteen point three points per hundred possessions when he's on the floor in this series, and they're plus twelve point eight when he's off the floor in this series. Um, They've clearly just he's he's not helping them right now, and it's it goes beyond the numbers. You just watch him play; he's so in his own head right now. It's crazy. Yeah, I, it's so. If you take him out, though, now all of a no. Sudden, I mean, yeah. I think the I think the question was tongue in cheek, and the answer is you know if it's if it is a serious question, no, that does not help OKC <laughs> if he's out. I mean, all season long those numbers were basically flipped. I mean, they were so much better with him on the floor than with him off this season and last season. Um, but just in the microcosm of this tiny little series, he is not helping, that's for sure. At least not yet. No, I mean, they're, I, both of us picked OKC in seven, right? Those picks look terrible yep. at this point. <laughs> uh, NBA math founder Adam Promel picked the Jazz in five. I cannot wow. believe that. That is shocking. Shout out Adam. Yeah. So maybe I would kind of expect the Jazz been playing just out of their minds. I would kind of expect Oklahoma City just to get Game Five, but I do too. Yeah. I, I'm at the point where I I don't I don't think you can expect them or even hope that they're going to come back and and win this series. I won't move on my pick just because I'm right or wrong. I'm just going to stick with it. I just haven't seen a I didn't see a collapse like this coming. And I, I don't necessarily know what they can do to change because this has been a season-long issue. And some of it's just – the offense, it's not fun to watch. At the same time, well, Car- Carmelo Anthony is taking shots for the most part that the Thunder would want him to take, and he's just missing them. And there's not a solution for that other than, hey, Melo needs to make his three-pointers. Play. <laughs> well, that too um, – I just – and I don't know what you really experiment with. You, the Patrick Patterson, he's been semi-effective in this series. I, I have another question that we can, we can keep talking on this uh, very topic, though. Uh, it's from Alex Blickle at Alex, B-L-I-C-K-L-E-1. And he asks, should Carmelo Anthony be playing over Jeremy Grant? So we can, we can kind of keep going on Melo. Defensively, I, I, if you want to lean in to the – like your defense, then no. And at, but I just does that fix it? Like, do you know what I mean? Because- I I honestly, I'm honestly trying to think of what Mello brings that's positive to the Thunder. If he's not hitting his three pointers, it's nothing because he can't yeah. defend. And if they're going to attack him and pick and roll coverage, I just, like he's they're not going to be able to do anything. I get it from that perspective, but what is is Grant going to help your defense that much? Because everyone else just seems to be melting down. Yeah, I mean, it, it's maybe not enough of a fix to flip the series at this point. But I, 
I think OKC would probably be better with him or Abrines on the floor instead of Melo. I just, every game I watch, it's like Melo is one of the biggest positives for the Jazz. <laughs> yeah. That, every, I, every single time he shoots, I'm, <laughs> my wife was laughing at me last night uh, as we were watching the game. I said something like, yes, please shoot. And she's not watching the game. She was looking at something on the iPad. And she, without skipping a beat, she goes, did, did Melo just shoot? <laughs> I said, yep. Um, that, that's like a great defensive possession for Utah right now is him putting a shot up. Yeah, I don't know why they haven't. I, I talked about this with some other writers too. The fact that they never really experimented with Melo as, as sort of the head of the bench unit is inexcusable to me. Do you know how many minutes he played with Westbrook and George both off the floor? For the regular season? Yeah. Probably sub 150. 108, so you were right on. Um, and OKC was plus 10.5 points per 100 possessions in those 108 minutes. Why wouldn't they at least try having him go up against bench players? I I honestly don't know, but wasn't that like kind of a thing with Paul George too? They just haven't staggered minutes effectively, and that all... Yeah. All, that dates back, I think, to the Scott Brooks era, but it also dates back to they never let Oladipo get the keys of the offense last year either under Billy Donovan. Yeah, it's uh, I think it was uh, – I wish I could remember his name. I, I'm going to feel bad not crediting him for this, but he made a point to me last night that um, they basically just gave the keys to Russell Westbrook and they built – the team. I don't know if they built a team where they just sort of forfeited a team to his will, um, and now they're they're paying the price for it. They didn't. I don't know if they. I don't even know if they did it that way though. And that's the issue with Westbrook is so a lot of people are, are talking about maybe his knee has been bothering him. It's possible. the The other thing I will point out, and I make jokes about Westbrook all the time. You look at the sheer volume of his workload over the past few years. It's very substantial. We have to yeah, remember Kevin, that's for sure. Kevin yeah. Durant missed two thirds of 2014, 2015. Westbrook has missed five total games since 2015, 2016. So the last and three he seasons. plays at like nine thousand miles an hour every single game too. Right, and over those last so since 2014 to 2015 as well, Westbrook has notched two of the three highest usage rate in NBA history. <laughs> that's and again we make so, fun of that, but part of it has been born from necessity. You look at 2014-2015 with Durant missing that time. Westbrook missed 15 games that year as well. And then last year, he really had no other option other than... Well, I do think there's a flip side to the argument. You know, the people who say maybe maybe if you trust Victor Oladipo to do a little bit more last year, he's closer to what he is in Indiana. I think there's a there's probably truth to both sides of this is what I'm saying. The thing about they Westbrook, need him to do a lot, but at the same time, I I'm starting to wonder if he helps really anyone get better, or if he's the other the other thing I've considered is maybe he's just not the guy to play alongside other stars. If you went with the like just Westbrook and four shooters model, you might be better than this team is now. Or Westbrook yeah. and Adams, and then all shooters. And Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, I mean, Paul George has shot the ball at points in this series um, pretty well. He's averaging— And he shot well, very well in the regular season. Right, and I looked. For, for the series, he's averaging—or for the playoffs, he's averaging um, the second most pull-up three-point attempts of anyone in the league, 5.8 per game. And he's shooting 52.2% on them. That's yeah, he's hitting some nasty— 
pull-ups too. Like he's, uh, there's been several shots in this series that I'm just like, wow. And yeah, he his, swishes him. His effective field goal percentage on pull-ups for the series is 62.5. Effective field yeah, goal percentage. That would be an unreal tough. true shooting percentage, but that's his effective yeah. field goal percentage. Um, yes, he, he's a shooter. Carmelo Anthony should be a shooter, but they're used to operating with the ball in their hands. And if you gave him, I'm trying to think of what would be the model roster for West This is Coast. another reason I think Abrinas should be playing. <laughs> right. Because um, he's not going to hurt you defensively any more than Melo does. That's extremely fair. You're going to have to hide him in the same ways you try and hide Melo, and they're going to attack yeah. him in the same ways. I don't know why you wouldn't do that then. Because And Paul George, to his credit, he is probably... I, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook worked, but Paul George isn't as transcendent as Kevin Durant. Paul George is probably the limit to the level of star that I think Russell Westbrook can help or can complement Westbrook without it being like this tug of war because he's going to be okay subsisting on some more catch and shoot threes than other guys. At least he seemed like he was that way for part of the season. But you, but you just look in general, maybe Westbrook needs to be like the focal. Think of last year's roster, but with more shooting, that might be his ideal situation unless he's going to develop as like a better off ball guy himself. Yeah. Um, somebody, I didn't write this question down, but somebody actually asked how many off-ball points he scored in the series, and I'm not even sure. I know how to look that up. Um, um, I can look it up if you talk for a minute. Okay, I'm going to throw out a quick question then while you look that up. This one is sort of for our own entertainment. This is Isaac Harris again, who I warned you was coming back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> warned. If you could have one player on your playoff team, would you rather have Trey Burke or Bina Udri? And I got to admit, I think the pendulum has swung back to you on this, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Trey Burke was 15th among players with at least as many minutes in offensive box plus minus this season. And since that question has very little to do with the playoffs, we can probably move on. I just thought it was really funny that Isaac threw out our shout-outs. Um, Okay, if you don't have that, I've got another question teed up. Um, I have part of it. Okay, um, I was going to try to do it by like, I was going to look up his isolation, pick and roll, and transition points, and then subtract him from his total points. But uh, NBA.com still only had three games for him and the, the play yeah, types. stuff hasn't um, updated just yet. So I just looked it up, and he's this is like a rough estimate, and it's not going to include cuts but he's averaging 1.8 points off catch-and-shoot opportunities per game. And how many points is he averaging? Like, he's got to be over 20, right? For the... For the series. Yeah, he's at 21.3. Oh. So you're looking at... So... If you're you're looking at... So, I mean, it's less than 9% of his offense is coming from catch-and-shoot situations. And the but Thunder don't, don't run this ton of off-ball movement either. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not sure I would want him taking more catch-and-shoot no, opportunities. You, you, well, that's the problem is if he was a reliable catch-and-shoot option, this team doesn't look – it probably looks a heck of a lot better, but you could say that yeah. about how many people. Um, He's, and he has – this is total for the series. In 148 minutes, he has five points off catch-and-shoot opportunities, which makes me think that the average was wrong. 1.3 catch-and-shoot points per game, so I was even off. On, I said 1.8. I, I must have – my eyes were misleading me. So it's just he's taking 1.8 catch-and-shoot field goal attempts per game sheesh um okay i found who that was from cage with the curl at j-a-y-e underscore green g-e-r-e-e-n-e 
Um, well done answering that on the fly, Dan. I'm impressed. All right, we're going to keep with this series for at least one more question. This one comes from Josh Roberts at jjazz3. Do the Jazz have any realistic shot of pushing the Rockets to six or seven games? This is obviously assuming uh, Utah advances, which I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be totally surprised if OKC won three games in a row, but that that's going to be that would take quite an effort and quite a turnaround for OKC to win this series. So I don't blame Josh for making that assumption. Um, Utah went zero and four against Houston in the regular season. They looked kind of helpless. <laughs> for long stretches in a lot of those games. They got worked by Houston a few times last year, too. Um, I, I don't really see the, the weakness Houston has that Utah can easily exploit. Houston is just such a juggernaut. I feel like the only way Utah is going to be able to push this series, they're, they're just going to have to get red, red, red hot from three. They shot 32.5% from three against Houston in the regular season. Uh, took about 33s a game. They might need to up that to like 35 or 40 and hope to hit, you know, I, I, to, to beat them, they might hit like 45 to 50% to, to beat a game, to beat them in a game. So, and you got to do that four times to win the series. So it is a very, very, very uphill battle for them in the next round. I think what do they have to do to beat them is sort of lean into what they've been doing against the thunder. And that's, they have to, I don't want to say play. Actually, you know what? They're not playing Houston's game, but they've been the this jazz team has just been faster than I, I think anyone yeah, really recognized. They're, true. they're fifth in transition frequency for the postseason. Fifth. They're fifth in possessions used per 48 minutes for the postseason. And what they're also That's very surprising. What they're also doing is they're they're fourth in three point attempt rate. They're averaging thirty one three point attempts think per one hundred possessions. And you that's a huge key to me. Sorry, keep going. And you want that number to come up because that's still, which is just ridiculous because it just looks at what Houston's doing. Houston's attempting almost forty four threes per one hundred possessions right now, and they're only hitting them though at a thirty two point nine percent clip. So if you look at this variance, and this is what I pointed to to why the Timberwolves wouldn't have a chance in the Rocket series. Houston's making 14.5 three-pointers per 100 possessions. The Jazz are making 11.2. That's still, let's just call it about a 10-point gap then. Yeah. That's that's tough to overcome. But it's offsettable. <laughs> uh, that's not a word. It's, it's a lot it's, better than Minnesota's, that's for sure. Yeah. Right, because Minnesota's making 9.2 threes per 100 possessions right now, so they're starting off in this basically 16-point deficit. Uh, you don't want to say every game, but per 100 possessions, that's tough to make up. And yes, 10 points is equally hard, but the Jazz... You look at them and you know they, they have some of the shooters to do it. And even if they're not going to – you don't want to play Houston's game to a T. But it, they could take, I think, 36, 37, 38 three-pointers and it not be a stretch. And the other thing to me is they are being opportunistic in transition. They haven't been super effective against the Thunder in transition. But they're trying to get out. You know, you don't, they're, undering, they're, they're averaging under a point per possession in transition. Um, this was – just through their first three games, by the way, because I don't have the fourth game updated, but they're going out in transition. And that's part of the key is you want to keep applying that pressure to Houston's defense. And if they do that, I could see them at least making it a series. I don't think anyone would pick them to win because I think the Rockets are just a bad matchup for a team like them, just like they are with the Timberwolves, but the Jazz are not the Timberwolves. And they're going to give them more problems on the defensive end specifically. And I just, I'm more encouraged 
we could have said this about the Jazz's defense no matter what. I'm just more encouraged with the way that they're playing offense. And even we've seen it in crunch time situations during the regular season where they've been more apt to look to push the pace and just try and apply pressure before defenses get set. And that, to me, would be the key of making it a series with Houston, if not potentially beating them. The other thing that I think would be huge is uh, I don't think he can do this as, as effectively against James Harden as he has against Paul George, but if Joe Ingles is like right up in his grill and just is a pest all game long and Ricky Rubio can be a little bit of that against Chris Paul, that'll certainly help. I don't see – James Harden just doesn't get rattled by stuff like that, the way Paul George has been rattled though. So I And, and I also think he's – you know he's clearly better at drawing fouls, so if you're going to play him that aggressively, he's going to he'll probably take like 15 free throws. So it's it's risky to stay like as attached to James Harden as as Ingles has been to Paul George. Did you notice at all in last night's game how he was just face guarding him regardless of the possession? I mean the ball would be on the opposite side of the floor and Joe Ingles was just chest to chest with Paul George in the corner. And I don't I don't know if you can do that against. Houston, but if they're if they're pouring in tons of points, you might have to try some kind of an adjustment like that. He defended. I did look this up after the game, after watching it. He defended um, Paul George for twenty nine possessions during that game, and Oklahoma City as a team scored twenty five points on those possessions. So it's point wow. about point eight point eight six points per possession, which is incredible that's for the jazz not not the thunder fyi uh as the and this tracking data is we talk about this all the time it's obviously imperfect but paul george was two of seven from the field in those situations one of four from three and joe ingles is a smart defender we've talked about that beforehand guarding james harden would be a different beast i will say this do you think it's at all easier maybe to guard harden because he's not as he's gonna be more craftier with his step backs and his handles overall but he's not as fast as paul george does that at all make it easier for Joe Ingles or no? Is it because James Harden just has I, that has that guile? Yeah. I, George is faster. I would agree with you there. And I think he moves more off the ball than than Paul or than uh, James Harden does. The problem with James Harden, and I'm sure Ingles will probably spend some time on Chris Paul did, uh, as well. He did last year when, when Paul was on the Clippers. Against those guys, you're just out on an island. And it, it must it must seem like you're out there forever because they they will just break guys down for five or six seconds and we've we've talked about it before they're the the two best isolation players in the league right now and if you do somehow manage to stay in front of them they've got three or four shooters that they can kick out to I I don't know I guess it would depend on what kind of a defender you are but I don't know if I would prefer to just be on somebody's hip chasing them around the floor coming off screens all game or to be stuck on that island. Um, I, I think if it's Harden who's on the island with you, you, you probably take the other option. And I think when you look at the surrounding supporting cast, too, if Oklahoma City had more shooters, it would make yeah. defending Paul George tougher. That's for sure. Um, all right, this is from Matt Sanchez, at underscore Matt Sanchez. Who's been the most underrated slash underappreciated performer of the playoffs? And he, he has some suggestions here. Favors, Middleton, Holiday, Bellinelli, and... I'm going to steal one of his suggestions, actually. I haven't heard a lot about Chris Middleton this postseason. Here are his uh, raw numbers. 25.5 points, 
six and a half rebounds, four assists, 1.3 steals, one block, 6.2 box plus minus, 73 true shooting percentage <laughs> through four games, 25.8 PER. Um, he's one of 38 players this postseason who have taken at least 50 shots. In that group, he's first in true shooting percentage, eighth in box plus minus, eighth in win shares per 48, and sixth in PER. Um, he's been a monster this postseason. I, I, so, so that's the one I'm going to go with. Chris Middleton, underappreciated. And just as a side note, another one he threw out was Marco Bellinelli. Philly is plus 16.3 points per 100 possessions with Bellinelli on the floor this postseason, and they're minus 8.8 when he's off. So he might have a little bit of an argument, too. Um, Chris Middleton's a, a hell of a pick. I think he'd probably be my pick as well. The The other just, thing that's been interesting, if you want to just talk about Milwaukee really quick, um, Don Maker Don Maker has been really good for them. He's been awesome. I was looking up. I was gonna, it was going to be like a semi troll tweet, but his career playoff numbers are like up near the top. If you limit it to, <laughs> you limit it to guys who've played at least as many minutes as him, and and there's just like there's regular season thon and there's playoff thon. He's he, I'm, I'm with you. He's been really good. He, they have a 130.6 offensive rating when he's on the floor, 102.7 <laughs> defensive rating. It's only 56 minutes, so I, I totally get the, the skepticism there. Middleton would be a pick for me just because it seemed like we were focusing or everyone was focusing on how poor the Bucks were playing through those first two games, and he was amazing yeah. with Giannis through those first two games. I've also been really impressed with OG Ananobi. His defense is just like these, some of the assignments he picks up where he's chasing around point guards now in this Washington series as well. Um, he's shooting 55.6% from three too, just 2.3 attempts per game, but you're not asking him to create a ton of offense. Uh, their net rating differential is better with him on the floor, which isn't too surprising if you watch them um, all year, but it's higher than it is for uh, DeMar DeRozan. And it's, it's it's just behind Lowry, Ibaka, and and Valanciunas. So it's I mean it's like he's right there with the starters, but he's just so important of what they've done um, defensively in the sense that they haven't been better defensively statistically when he's on the floor. Uh, that's been a problem for the starting lineup at all. But I I feel like the defensive rating they post with him on the court one fourteen point one. I kind of almost feel like it'll be wor- it would be worse if you replaced him with anybody else in those situations with the lineups that he spends a great deal of time in. So I've been impressed with his defense there, but Middleton just as a standout performer doesn't seem like he's getting enough love. We've talked about Derek favors. I almost feel like more than Chris Middleton. Yeah. And he's been good too. I think he's a worthy uh, inclusion as well. We just to back that. up your, go ahead. I was going to say, we talked about this last pod, his contract situation this year is going to be fascinating. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And an OB is uh, 13th in postseason box plus minus among players with at least 50 minutes. So that backs up the points that you were making. Um, okay, this one is from... I, I lied. We are going to talk about the Thunder Jazz series a little bit more. Yuri Barrera, at Y-U-R-I-B-A-R-R-E-I-R-A. Would you fire Billy Donovan and trade Mello if you were the Thunder's GM? <laughs> no one's... I, I was going to say... I. I, I'm sure a lot of Thunder fans are wondering this right now. Nobody's going to trade for Melo. Not unless you're. It's like an Evan Turner, Miles Leonard for Melo situation. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You got you would have to take bad money back is basically what you're saying. Right, and you don't want to do that because Melo's on an expiring deal and you want to reload whether or not or just have any like semblance of flexibility whether or not Paul George comes back in 2019. Yeah. And that idea is interesting for Portland, I think. We talked about this last pod too that maybe Melo would have been better on the Blazers, but I just there's it's hard to see why OKC would do it for the reasons you just laid out. Melo um, could. I'm not entirely convinced that he won't exercise his early termination option. I know it's 27.9 million. Try to million. go get like a small, not like small annually, but still like a three or four year deal somewhere. No, actually, I'm not even sure someone would give him. It would take him at least three seasons to recoup that money. I don't. Is that that's even, what I'm saying? Like if somebody gave him like three years and 20 million. Yeah, and I'm wondering. I'm wondering even I think. like even as that comes out of my mouth, I think who's going to offer him three years and twenty million? Yeah, because if you gave him the full mid level, that would have for three years, that would about make up what he's leaving on the table. And I'm trying to figure out who would give him the full mid level over three years, and I can't come up with anybody unless it's a remember how like the Bucks and the Nuggets and like even the Bulls just wanted like Dwayne Wade's cachet. Yeah, name, just to, put, to be. Yeah. get a big name in the room, and yeah, um, the Jazz could totally look into that. He could be their Joe Johnson. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> um, the other thing, I don't know if you fire Billy Donovan, if it's going to help bring Paul George back maybe, but this seems, and again, I don't want to criticize Russell Westbrook. It's just this seems like a problem in the sense he cannot be in a system as a point guard unless he's going to no. improve his shooting and, and become this off-ball player, which I don't know that he's ever going to at this point in his career, the team has to revolve around him and there's not much you can do with that. You can't be too creative. He is going to have such an interesting legacy by the time he's done. Assuming let's say he never wins a title and he finishes his career at like 25 points, eight rebounds and eight assists per game. His, his raw numbers are just going to look insane, but then I don't know. It's just going to be a really, really interesting legacy to me. Yeah, I wonder. I want to see what his career numbers are right now. The, the he's, he's twenty three points, eight assists, and seven rebounds. He's genuinely a good basketball player, and there's a oh ju- for sure. A, yeah. Here's the and I, this might be the perfect way to put it. And I'm probably not even verbalizing it correctly yet. I would rather have him in a situation where there are no other stars than I would rather have him in the current OKC situation. Yeah, and I never really thought about that until you mentioned it earlier in, in this episode, but that does make sense. If you just surrounded him with four 3-and-D guys, what would that look like? Yeah, or, or Adams and three 3-and-D guys, whatever, you know? Yeah. So, uh, that, that would be – and the other thing with the Thunder is we have to remember they're missing Andre Robertson. You don't want to say he's been the key to everything just because it's, it's Andre Robertson, but his defense was missed. That lineup, even with Melo struggling, the starting five was really good. With Robertson in it, this could look like a different team, and maybe that's something they can sell to George in free agency. But the, the we were still just sitting here waiting for them to be something that apparently they weren't. Even now, we're talking about, hey, they could come back, and maybe they could rattle off three straight wins. But we're still looking at it on paper, and just functionally it hasn't worked on the court. Not consistently nope. enough, not for long enough periods. All right, this one's from Ryan Blackburn at NBA Blackburn. Ben Simmons is the blank ranked player in the playoffs right now. Oh God, this is really this is a really shitty question because it, it's hard to answer. Where do you have him? I uh, so I decided to at least give myself something to sort of gauge this off of. And 
my ballpark reaction when I first saw the question is probably one of the 10 best players in the playoffs right now. So he's among guys who've taken at least 50 shots, and this is the same thing that I did with Middleton. Simmons is fifth in box plus minus, ninth in win shares per 48, 11th in PER, and third in assist percentage. And it's just um, the way he has controlled games for Philly, basically since Joel Embiid went out with the, the facial fracture, is just unbelievable. He he found another level, which is insane to think about for somebody who was already averaging like seventeen seven and seven um, after Embiid went down, and and he's like, it's like when Neo figures out the Matrix at the end of the first <laughs> <laughs> Matrix movie. He's like seeing everything before it happens. Uh, he he's incredible to me, and I think I kind of ventured out onto this ledge a few times this season. I think he's Philly's best player. I know a lot of people default to Joel Embiid, but he's just incredible to me. The passing, and I don't, I don't even think it hurts that he can't really shoot right now because he can get to the rim whenever he wants. And if I mean, he finds these passing lanes regardless of how close people are defending him personally. He's just been unbelievable. So I think, I think my answer is probably the one that I had gut reaction-wise still, probably one of the 10 best players in the postseason. But for him to be doing what he's doing as a rookie is just crazy to me. It's absurd. So among the 147 players in the playoffs who are averaging 10 minutes or more per game, he is fifth in assist percentage behind Russ, LeBron, Rondo, of course, and John Wall. He has a better assist-to-turnover ratio than James Harden. Jeez. Yeah, it's just he's he has a higher offensive rebounding rate than LeBron James. Wow. Yeah, uh, he's grabbing more. Um, he's grabbing twenty four point two percent of defensive rebounds. Which, if that's your point guard, you know it's a higher defensive rebounding rate than Giannis Antetokounmpo. <sighs> he just he does he does so many things, and uh, the jumper is just not. You know that's not something that I think really is a concern at this point. He's going to, uh, he's even looked, he's looked better in the post during the playoffs too. And I eventually think he's going to have the floater down. I'm just absolutely yeah. convinced. Do and I think if he's got that, those two things you just mentioned, the, the jumper is even less of a concern. I'm also, very, I could see him operating out of like high post, like Jokic in, in certain sets too. Go ahead. The other thing that's very much interested me is how his usage has basically gone unchanged in the playoffs. This whole thing just seems like super natural to him. He had a usage rate of 22.3 in the regular season. It's 22.7 in the playoffs. His roles essentially remain unchanged. Philly's depth probably helps with that. I mean, having him be back for the past couple games, obviously, too. But that he's just so consistent for someone with his experience level is just – it's absolutely astounding to me. I think you could comfortably say he's been one of the 10 best players in the playoffs thus far. I don't know that I'd go like five – that seems a little ambitious, but I think you could comfortably say that he's he's almost averaging a triple double per thirty six minutes. By the way, eighteen, well, ten, and nine—that's nuts. <laughs> he's almost averaging averaging a triple double raw uh, numbers too. I was I'm, I'm actually going to jump into another question now because we can keep talking about Simmons. NBA twenty four seven at B Ball Scholars asks if you had to choose between Mitchell and Simmons based only on their playoff performances, who would you pick? And I, I probably, we should have known that this debate was going to come back again. 
Um, Simmons' raw numbers, 19.3 points, 10.8 rebounds, 9.8 assists, 43.3 points plus points generated by assists per game. Um, to me, it's it's clearly Simmons, uh, the six foot ten point guard. Donovan Mitchell has been unbelievable, uh, particularly in fourth quarters. He, I think I checked this just this morning, so it should be um, still relevant or or still accurate. One point zero six points per minute in fourth quarters for Donovan Mitchell. The second place, Manu Ginobili is at zero point nine four. Um, pretty healthy gap. He's just unreal. What I don't know what clicks in his brain in fourth quarters, but he just all season and now especially on this huge playoff stage against Russell Westbrook, he's just been unbelievable in fourth quarters. But the steadiness of Ben Simmons and just the overall orchestration of the offense is that gives him the edge to me. Um, I also figured out Mitchell's points plus points generated by assists per game. And it's 34 and a half, which is still amazing for a rookie, but it's almost 10 short of what Simmons is doing. Um, I think people underestimate sometimes how much, how many points an assist generates. Um, so it's, it's Ben Simmons for me. I, I feel like I can say that pretty comfortably. Yeah, I don't need to add anything to that. Other than my eye test on Ben Simmons looking better in the post is not supported statistically. Oh, he is point. Is he? He's point six. He was point six nine points per post up. In the regular season, he's point six during the playoffs, so he hasn't been much worse. But he just—I don't, I don't know—he looks more comfortable. Some of his stuff is still just herky jerky when he's not able to finish directly at the rim. But I'm, I guess I'm just more confident with him backing down, or even when he's going to throw up some stuff, maybe just outside the restricted area. Now, probably irrational, but NBA.com doesn't have like assists out of post ups, right? No, he's turning the because that would be interesting for me to see. He he has. He his turnover rate in post ups has improved dramatically. He was turning the ball over in twenty two percent of his post ups during the regular season. That's at under one percent now in the playoffs. Apparently, oh, wow. apparently he has not committed a turnover out of the post in the playoffs. It's a zero point zero percent. It's only five point eight. We're only talking about five possessions, so I need to chill. But it's just <laughs> um, again ben, ben Ben Simmons for me would be the answer to that question. It's not even close. And from before, I think you could just comfortably put him as one of the 10 best players in the playoffs to date. All right. Diego Emmanuel at W E M O V I N D I E G O. Did you get that everybody? Um, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to answer his question fully, but I think it's a good starting point for a discussion. He says, rank the top 10 defensive guards. Um, And I'm not going to rattle off a list of 10, but I do have a few guys that have impressed me. Uh, Ricky Rubio, has been Homer. Uh, <laughs> he's been just a little past on on Russell Westbrook all series, and I think he's in his head just like Joe Ingles is in Paul George's head. I think Drew Holiday is the obvious one. What he did to Damian Lillard in that first round series was eye opening. Um, and I think both of us had him all defense when we did our awards pods. So shout out to us. And then I think there's a chance we did not, but I'm gonna. I'm pretty sure I did. Well, then I, I, I think anyway. I might have screwed up. He definitely would have been an omission. Collison and Oladipo. Um, Cleveland, it, all season long, it was like if they're going to figure things out and they're going to be a real contender, it's going to be all because of their offense. And Indiana has done a fantastic job 
of slowing that offense down here in this this first round series. And I think a lot of that credit has got to go to to Collison and Oladipo. So those are those are just a few guys that I think have been really good defensively as guards. Josh Richardson is just mind boggling. That's a good, good one. On the yeah, that's a good one for me. I can't. He he. There was this possession and the Heat lost the game. I think it was Game Four. He defended literally everybody on the Sixers in the half court in that same possession. He's just he's all over the place. It looks like he teleports sometimes because he's he's all over the place. So uh, he's been someone that impressed me. I'm going to say this, and it's only been situationally, but John Wall has turned on the Jets over the past two games a lot defensively. He's always been in that Bledsoe category where you could imagine him doing so much more on the defensive end, and I think he's broken that out a little bit more. Do we want to say Ben Simmons? Does he qualify as a point guard? He would definitely be someone that we would need to throw in there as well because he defends so many guys. And can I throw this one out? And I think you're going to laugh at me. Yeah, Manu, please do. Manu Ginobili. I think I'm doing it just, just relative to expectations of someone who is 100 years old. <laughs> but he is just – he took over the game to get that game for a win in San Antonio. And I – That was incredible. The end of that game was fun to watch. And he's, he's still just all over the place defensively. And if you're going to – I think a lot of it's going to be lopsided because it's the Warriors. But you're going to run him out against some subs. He's just still – he's got the – just the mobility to where I think you can be confident that he's not going to be this huge defensive liability. He's a pretty good rebounder, I think, at his age again, where he's going to grab uh, boards and then be able to look to to push the pace. Um, the defensive rating with him on the court for the Spurs has been 112.4, but that's actually better than they fared against the Warriors overall. They're 113.9 when he's off the court. I, this isn't like a 10 best defenders. This was me just shouting out Manu. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say, I realized about – Towards the, when it looked like the Spurs might blow the lead in the fourth quarter, I realized that not only like if that had been Manu Ginobili's last game, it would have come when Pop was unable to coach, Kawhi Leonard didn't play, when the, and when the Spurs blew a fourth quarter lead of a game that they led wire to wire basically to get swept in the first round. That would have been one of the most unsettling endings I could imagine for Manu Ginobili's career, possible. Yeah, that's that's true. It's uh. He hasn't said one way or the other if he's coming back, right? No, he's hedged. I think he's going to come back. I'm going to preface that with I thought Tim Duncan was going to come back, and he did yeah. not. <laughs> they're, they're very much, I think a lot of Spurs guys, and especially those two, are wired to just sort of randomly walk away when they feel it. <laughs> it doesn't need to be any sort of fanfare or anything like that. I just really, I hope he comes back because I don't want to see him. I would like to see Pop be able to coach his last game. And he's not coaching yeah. game five either. Yeah. I get what, obviously, again, yeah. we send our thoughts to him after the loss of his wife. Just um, I, It just seems like Tim Duncan's ending was kind of unsettling, the way they lost to the Thunder that year. This is yeah. would just fall under that same umbrella. Um, all right, I'm going to move on to Mitch at Mitchell Chetsky, C-H-E-T-S-K-I. Who you got coming out of the East? Um, based on what I've seen in the first round, I'm <laughs> I'm leaning Philadelphia now. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> I think we've we've kind of touched on it a little bit. I mean, Ben Simmons is one of the ten best players in the playoffs right now. Um, Joel Embiid has been excellent all season. There's a debate, like we said, between him and. Simmons is, is who's that team's best player. So you have two like top-tier talents at the top. Uh, their biggest problem throughout the regular season 
was that bench that they had this just world beating starting five. And then when the bench came in, things kind of fell apart, but they have more than stabilized that with Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli. Um, and I mentioned that number earlier that they're plus 16.3 points per hundred possessions when Bellinelli's on the floor. So if you're getting that kind of a boost from your bench and you already have, when we, we talked about this in that lineup spot, the best lineup in the NBA this season, um, Combine that with Cleveland's struggles. Uh, I think Toronto is, they're still going to be tough to beat. Uh, that's for sure. But they've struggled with Washington. Uh, you know, Boston, the number two seed, they, they're obviously in trouble against Milwaukee and they don't have their best two players. It's just like everything is sort of breaking right for this young and uh, up and coming Philly team. If I was to pick a team that wasn't the Cavaliers, I'd probably pick them at this point. I'm I'm more concerned about Toronto than I thought I'd be with the absence of Fred Van Vliet. I do yeah. think that they're going to come back and we'll kind of see that the I, – I wrote basically a, a postmortem for the Wizards after game two. I still can't imagine them winning that series. Uh, it would be the Sixers. I just I'm, – I'm still in that mode. I refuse to bet against LeBron until, until it proves to be a bad bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if George Hill is able to get healthy before the end of the Pacers series – that lineup where you play basically LeBron as your four and Kevin Love as your five with Corver, Smith, and Hill, that lineup is going to destroy Worlds on on the offensive end. It has, in the limited time it's played against the Pacers, uh, it has a 126.9 offensive rating, and the defensive rating has actually been really good as well. But again, we're talking about a two-game sample size. That's still just something I would have been interested to just see more of and that might be the path the LeBron at the four Kevin Love at the five we've talked about that before I think it that is kind of their path to getting out of the Eastern Conference and I don't think we really got to see any of that lineup during the regular season I looked it up at NBA.com really quickly before and it it didn't come up Um, they need something more from their supporting cast it sucks that we look at this Cavs team for them doesn't suck for me sucks for them that you look up and down and you don't know where what production is going to come from who on any given night besides LeBron. And I don't think we've seen that for one of his teams since he left Cleveland the first time. Kevin Love should be close to a guarantee, but he hasn't been shooting the ball well. How much does that have to do with his thumb? We don't really know. You can expect him to shoot the ball well, but after that, it's just, you you can't. J.R. Smith has played inspired basketball somewhat, but you can't really count on him. Uh, Jordan Clarkson has not been good. Rodney Hood has been... I don't know that we could say he's not been good so much as he's just been non-existent, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, why isn't Tristan Thompson seeing the floor at all? I, just I, I, How many minutes has he played in this season now? It's uh, In the series, it's under 10 total. So it's just... I, I, that worries me, but I, I just refuse to pick against them. And it, it's not going to help them that they're not going to get rest in between the first and the second round, assuming they beat the Pacers. I'm, I just refuse to pick against them. And, and maybe it's irrational because they'll have to go through both the Raptors and probably the Sixers um, if Philly beats Milwaukee or Boston in the second round. I, I just, again, it comes back to my original point. I'm refusing to pick against LeBron until it proves to be a bet that's been beat. All right, I'm going to audible. The final question is going to be one for me, and it's just going to be who do we have coming out of the West since we just talked about who do we have coming out of the East. Oh, it's, is this even a question at this point? You're going to pick the Jazz, aren't you? <laughs> Somebody asked me this at the law school the other day, and I was like speechless. <laughs> um, the answer that I eventually found was if Stephen Curry's fine, 
then it's the Warriors. But I don't. Is he even going to play in round two? They said that the, there's the report that it wasn't sure he would be ready to start for round two, but he has resumed practice. So I would be very. That series is going to be super interesting if Curry's not playing because New Orleans looks ridiculous and Anthony Davis. Um, I think I think there will be an argument that he'll be the best player on the floor if Curry's not playing. Uh, Even if he's not playing, though, there we saw Drew Holiday defend Kevin Durant during the regular season. I don't know how a, how well that he's a monster, and maybe yeah. he can do a better job than anybody else you have. I'm Solomon Hill will probably see time on on KD too. They'll throw a bunch of people yeah. at him. Yeah, I just don't. What I I don't when you start to look at the defensive matchups don't feel without like... Curry, I don't know what the Pelicans really do. So you would put you say do you even throw Davis on KD sometimes? Probably not. But you have Davis on Dre. You'll have committee with Drew Holiday, Solomon Hill on um, KD. But who are you putting on Clay Thompson? I just it starts to just I don't know. It really starts to like kind of even without Curry, it starts to get messy. And you throw Curry into that series, and it just seems like the Pelicans are screwed. Yeah, and I think even if Curry doesn't play a single game in that series, I would pick the Warriors. I I just that it'd Portland be hysterical. Really if you opened my eyes. War, uh, picked against. Um, oh no, wait, I'm screwing up things. But go ahead, continue. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the Warriors would win that series. I just um, New Orleans looked so good, and I think they can make the Warriors at least uncomfortable. And the other thing I was thinking is they're up three to one against San Antonio, but they it just they don't feel quite like the dominant force that they've been in years past, even within this single series. Um, something just feels a little off, and maybe that's just my own head getting in the way of, of analysis there but there so I, I would probably still pick golden state um kevin durant can't shoot 28 percent from three forever right yeah that's that's true that's a good point uh Once, same it, it's funny that <laughs> the warriors two highest by percentage three-point shooters clay is number one in the playoffs iggy is number two he's been hot from beyond <laughs> the arc towards the end of the season their third their third best clips come from quinn cook and nick young at 33.3 percent each that's perfect. That's terrible, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen Curry will be back by round three, we can assume. Um, it, is it fair to just say that maybe they won't have him to start round two, but as soon as they lose a game against the Pelicans, he'll come back? Unless maybe he'll come back. Yeah, that could be. They were picking Golden State against Houston too, right? I'm, I wouldn't. If they don't have Curry, that series becomes really interesting, but we have yeah. to assume that it's going to be Houston Houston, um, Golden State in the Western Conference Finals at this point, and that Curry would be back by then. I would, I would definitely pick the Warriors without. Yeah, maybe it's I'm a series. Too. Like maybe that's a team that could push a full strength Warriors to six games. I wouldn't pick Golden State in five. I wouldn't be, you know, yeah. if, if Golden State played Cleveland right now, I'd be tempted to pick Golden State in four. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the, I think just to make things interesting, my predictions are going to be the Warriors and the Seventy Sixers. I can't. I want to go there. I want to, but I can't. If you're, but this is interesting. If the Sixers make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, I still don't think LeBron James goes there just because it seems very, it just doesn't, it seems like he would leave to me Cleveland for Houston or nobody. Like maybe LA should be thrown in there, but I, I don't know. But like if you're Paul George, why aren't you looking at the Sixers all of a sudden then? Like that's a great basketball situation for you. Yeah. 
Would LeBron really want to follow in KD's footsteps and join the team that beat him in the conference finals too? That's also fair. Yeah, I mean, I'm agreeing with the point that you just made. So, Is he really going to um, follow in Kobe's footsteps in Los Angeles, though? Kobe's better than him. You know? Yeah. Um, the, yeah, let's open that can of worms. <laughs> Brian, T- Brian Taporek, who's a, a Philly guy, he was talking uh, recently about Chris Middleton as an option in Philly. 2019 for sure. That's like... He's, he would be super interesting there. He's a perfect. He's he's like one of those universal fit guys. Yep. He's like a like a better playmaking version of Otto Porter almost. He's just they're not really similar, but it, where you look and you could plug Otto Porter in every team. I feel like yeah. you could almost do the same with Chris Middleton. Um, the one thing that I did want to get before really quick before we wrap up though, and this will be my own question: What do you do if you're the Blazers following this sweep? Since we haven't really talked good about the question. aftermath yeah. of their loss. Um, did you see, uh, I think it was Olshay's quote from the, the sort of season wrap up presser about, uh, the media's expectations of the Blazers. I saw some of his quotes. I don't remember seeing that one. I saw that he I don't remember said the this exact, is still a work in progress. Yeah. I, I wish I could remember the exact wording. I think it was Sean Hyken who, who, uh, shared the quote on Twitter it was something like, and this this will be a loose translation. Actually, it was basically we we knew that we weren't as good as you all thought we were. Um, I don't know. What are you supposed to make of they, that? I know it was really weird. Um, I want to see if I can find the exact wording. You don't get to say that with that type of payroll, and I'm not saying they should have made the Western Conference Finals. And something that bears repeating. The Blazers had the third seed in the West. They were three games in front of the ninth place Nuggets. That's how That's everything tightly, and tightly I, contested out West. I quote tweeted the the Olshay quote that I'm trying to find right now uh, when it came out and said, I, I didn't really understand how they were winning all season. I kept waiting for them <laughs> to fall back to the pack, and it just n- never really happened. Um. I don't know if I'm going to find it because he's got a bunch of quotes from Olshay. Well, their issue is... Oh, here it is. Oh, okay, okay, we were a lot more conservative in our approach than all the pundits who were who picked us to win. That's not... Isn't that a weird quote? You got swept and you shouldn't have... That's the point here is we had the conversation. I picked Blazers in seven. You picked Pelicans in seven. I don't think this was... I, I don't necessarily – it seemed mo- like most people picked the Blazers to win that series. I think that said more about the underestimation of the Pelicans than the yeah. overestimation of the Blazers. But, like, you don't get to say that shit after you get swept. You don't You don't get to say that. I'm sorry. Um, I wonder if he if he's feeling the heat himself when he makes comments like that. Well, he uh, – so everyone should read this. Dan Carbaugh over at NBC Sports published a great postmortem on the Blazers, and so did Rob Mahoney at SA.com. It's easier to get rid of stats just because the Blazers gave um, Olshie an extension. And just financially, I know they don't count against the cap, but if you're the ownership, it's just easier or like cheaper to roll with Olshie at this point. That being said, the Blazers' problem is you look at their payroll, if you float – Cap holds, not even the new contracts, but cap holds for Napier, Nurkic, and Pat Connaughton this summer. And I'm not even including Ed Davis. Your payroll just blows past $130 million. And, and the guys that are on contracts, they're, uh, 
they're going to be so hard to try to trade. Right, and you don't trade unless you're trading here. And the options would be because you're not going to get value on Evan Turner. Even if you sweeten no. the pot to get rid of him, you're just making it cheaper for yourself to use the taxpayer mid-level exception, essentially. Uh, because, I mean, even... And how much does Nurkic cost? Is it worth re-signing him when he's not really the anchor for your defensive scheme so much as he's a product of it, at least to me? And I think that yeah. proved it against the Pelican series. Uh, you also have Ed Davis, who if you're not going to bring back Nurkic, you definitely should be bringing back Ed Davis. You can't just roll forward with Zach Collins, basically. And I guess you could look more looks at Caleb Swanigan or maybe you try. I, I Myers Leonard, maybe you're hoping to get something from him. Trading Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum solves nothing because McCollum's not going to get you enough to where we can say, "Oh, hey, you you exchanged him for spare parts that are going to elevate your ceiling." I just don't see the that I- happening. The idea of trading Lillard is just madness. To Unless me. you, want, if you were looking to reset the deck and you want McCollum to be your featured option, but like but, maybe, but McCollum's but not why? really right. So a Lillard could get you more, but you're at that point you're starting a rebuild essentially without someone who I think you can consider a true cornerstone, it helps for yeah. you. C.J. McCollum is good. He He's good on offense. You have he's him under good, contract for three years. He's good, but he's 26, yeah, and he's not close to as good as Lillard. Right, and that's what I, he's not the playmaker Lillard is. He's not the defender Lillard is at this point either, and he'll be 27 by the time next year starts. So you're if you want to compete, you're moving forward with this backcourt, which is fine. You just need to hope that you're going to hit on like these margins or kind of hope that you make the Raptors-like leap where the players around them just grow, but you don't have Zach Collins maybe could be that guy. Is it Connaughton could maybe be that guy. You're not going to get, maybe Harkless can be that guy to a little extent. Just be, he was coming off knee surgery in the playoffs, but he was hot really to end the season. You looked at his effective field goal percentage, like over his final 25 appearances in the regular season, it was basically the highest in the NBA. And he's going to give you some more defensive looks. Perhaps they can make that, leap that quantum sized internal developmental step forward but that's what you have to hope for at this point because i don't think that you can cobble together a trade package that's going to get you anything of value in return without including Lillard or mccollum and you shouldn't include them even trading harkless or amenu and attaching picks i don't that's not going to get you an appreciable upgrade i just don't see it amenu is too he was defending anthony davis a lot in that series against the pelicans which obviously you got swept but to have someone who can do that or you can at least say, hey, we're going to have Avenue defend Davis. That's not someone you want to move. And Harkless is just, relatively speaking, is is fairly cheap. If you're gonna, if he's going to knock down threes and defend well, you, give me him at two years and $22 million, basically. Yeah. I'll, I think they should at least uh, float McCollum out there just to see. I agree with you that he might not bring a ton back. But even if you could get like a shooting guard with comparable skill that's two inches taller... <laughs> or maybe not comparable skill, but but lesser offensively, but and better defensively. Would you consider trading him for basically like picks? What the trade that people like to float around would be if the Cavaliers were willing to build something around the Nets pick? Would you do it? Well, at that point, you're talking Lillard, right? No, for McCollum. If they're going to give me the Nets pick for McCollum, I'd do that in a heartbeat. About a top eight pick. I don't. Is that really? Uh, I guess. Yeah. Trade? Maybe it's. Yeah. Maybe it's not as. If it jumps uh, into the top three and they're the, offering that, then yeah. But they're not offering. If they jump into the top three, they need to be calling Portland about Lillard though, just to see what happens. Yeah, I kind of forgot how much better Brooklyn got this season, or how much worse all the other teams got. Maybe I should put. <laughs> um, I think I would still at least entertain it, even if it was like the eighth pick. Oh, uh, well, I would too. I just don't think they'll ultimately. 
I don't think they're going to move either of them. And to me, it would almost feel more likely that they move Lillard before McCollum and, and almost hit reset from there. Because, and that's yeah. not, I'm not trying to criticize Damian Lillard. It's just, and maybe you move both of them at that point, but I don't, moving either one of them isn't going to help you do anything immediately. I just still think that Lillard's 27 years old and he just dragged a team that I thought would struggle to be 500 to the three seed and, and has a real case for first team all NBA. I, I feel like you'd have to get a, a just amazing form. And I wouldn't, I don't, yeah. he's their best. I wouldn't want to move him. I'm just, I, I mean, Olshi drafted McCollum too. I don't, I don't believe he was there. Maybe he was there and they drafted Lillard, but Lillard's not considered his pick. Uh, there, uh-huh. I just, they're probably not going to move either one. The one they should gauge, though, to see what's out there would certainly be McCollum. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, all right, I think that wraps us up for this mailbag. Thanks to everybody who sent us questions. Apologies if if we did not get to your questions, but please continue to send them through. We love interacting with you guys on Twitter and with the podcast. Um, if you want to find Dan on Twitter, he's at Dan Favelli, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show's at Harvard Knox. The sponsor is at NBA underscore math. If you go to nbamath.com slash shop and you enter the promo code Benno, B-E-N-O, you get 15% off any of the really awesome t-shirt designs there. Um, get yourself a Chris Depp's unicorn shirt. Get yourself a Rudy Gobert's Stifle Tower shirt. All those, those shirts are fantastic. And use the promo code B-E-N-O for 15% off. As Dan said at the top, Leave us reviews, ratings. We appreciate all that stuff. Uh, we appreciate, like he said, the interaction on Twitter when you guys tell us that you have left a review or, or say nice things about us. We, we really sincerely do appreciate that. And until next time, we leave you with the shout-out to Ben Oudry. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.